Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody. Welcome to New Books and Film, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Dan Moran. Matthew Kennedy has written about the fall of the big-budget Hollywood musical and three biographies of Hollywood figures, the actresses Marie Dressler and Joan Blondell and the director Edmund Goulding. His new book is part biography, part appreciation, and all enthusiasm for the films of Elizabeth Taylor. And he's here today to talk about his book, On Elizabeth Taylor, An Opinionated Guide, published in 2024 by Oxford University Press. Matthew, welcome to the show. Dan, thank you very much. I'm really happy to be here. So let's start with something from your book before we get into the structure. You say that you first saw Elizabeth Taylor in Taming of the Shrew and that she has, and this is your words, entranced you like no other actress. Why? I'm not, uh, that's not a completely easy answer, uh, easy question to answer because it, it sort of encompasses the the sort of ethereal quality that she has as a movie star, and part of the 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 majesty of her and other select movie stars is that they defy easy description. That they, I just know that they affect me on a kind of primal cellular level, and that's certainly the case with her. I, I can sort of try to take it apart and remember that as a 10-year-old kid at the Cascade Theater in my hometown of Reading, watching Taming of the Shrew, which I have a vivid memory, huge single screen, right, in the old days before, before theaters were subdivided. And um, that first shot of her in Taming of the Shrew is of one of her eyes peering through an, a slightly open door. And I've just never forgotten it. It's, first of all, she had magnificent eyes that were um, referred to as violet by many people. Um, plus, just beyond that within the show, she within that film, she had a kind of energy and a kind of charisma, again, as a 10-year-old budding cineast that I found completely enthralling. And that she's one of those people who, even on a screen as big as the one I saw as a kid, um, she she filled it and then some. And many people on a big screen get kind of lost for me because they're simply not charismatic enough. And that's when I realized and I, many years later that what I was seeing was true and genuine movie star power. And perhaps she was the first that affected me that way. And I've just never really let go of that, that feeling for her um, in all the films of hers, hers I've seen since. So yeah, it's, it's um, but it does, it does come down to something that's really hard to define yeah, in terms of, yeah. Um, and that's what keeps me coming back, you know? And again, other other stars for me have that quality, but she, for me, was the first. And I think arguably nobody, in, maybe in the history of movies, has ever epitomized or personified the notion of the movie star more than Elizabeth Taylor. Um, that might be somewhat forgotten today, but history 
And a look back at film history, I think might support that idea. Yeah. So, but that's that being said, the book is uh, not just an examination of that elusive, uh, magical quality known as movie star, the, the thing that we say, I know it when I see it, even if I can't, you know, really clearly articulate what it is. But the book is also maybe even more so dedicated to really trying to study her as an actress. And the point being that, you know, we think of her as this great movie star and certainly this amazing celebrity and later on in her life of philanthropist, but she was also an artist and she was making artistic decisions as the camera was rolling. And she had a very long career and she was uh, extremely knowledgeable about film technique uh, and all of that seems to be somewhat neglected in her legacy. And that's that's um, what I decided to focus on in the book. Yeah, that's you make so many good points there, because that's one thing that occurred to me when I read it was that, you know, the difference between some people are great movie stars, but they might not be a great actor or, or vice versa. Right. And that I, we just took it for granted that she was just always around like she was like, you know, that, you know, she was just who was she's Elizabeth Taylor. She's this bigger than life person. And. You reminded me just now in your answer about in Sunset Boulevard when Gloria Swanson says, you know, the, they had faces then and that there's, <laughs> no one, there's no one like Elizabeth Taylor now because, you know, the world is full of beautiful people. But she had this thing, like you said, when you first see her eye in Taming of the Shrew, that's, that's, a, that's a big, big moment where you, even as a 10 year old, your brain is trying to figure out, well, what makes this person different? Yeah, yeah. So well, yeah, it went straight into my whatever the, the cerebral term <laughs> is for, for, uh, Deep memory. Yeah, um, that's great. So let's talk about Camille Paglia. She calls her the mythic female, and you call her, and I just love this. This is page two of the book. You say she was always fun. <laughs> she was always fun. And I, and I thought to myself as I read that, that's a great adjective for her. So can you talk about that, that your word choice there? Well, Dan, thank you for, for lighting on such a basic word and, and you know, that, <laughs> that, and, and getting a lot out of it. The, um, what I read repeatedly and what I think comes across on the screen, at least in select performances, is that she was someone who simply wanted to enjoy life. And that also meant the life of a film set. So repeatedly from directors and co-stars and crews, I heard that she was very kind, very self-deprecating, uh, very generous, and that she had a an ability to diffuse tense situations. And what I thought about in, in, the, in terms of that is that if you're a working actor, which she also was, right, as well as a movie star, she set her alarm and she got up and she went to work for years and years and years, um, is that, you know, this is gig employment, right? I mean, especially after the studio system. And that must cause a great deal of stress uh, among among crew, among cast, you know, like, I don't know if I'm going to get a, I don't know if this is my last job, right? I mean, something may go wrong and this is it. And that's going to cause some, some tension on the set. And Elizabeth, I think was, again, according to accounts I've written, read, is very, very good at minimizing that stress and allowing people to have a good time in the moment, which of course meant that they're going to work better. Um, and it was probably for her own, her benefit as well. And also because of the size of her celebrity, especially later, well, maybe throughout her career, 
she knew that she had a power over people. She knew that she had an intimidation that people were gushing or tongue tied in her presence, you know, regularly. And she didn't necessarily like that. She was a very down to earth person. And so she, I think, created um, techniques and approaches on the set that made people at ease. Um, despite, you know, again, the, the blinding magnitude of her celebrity. Right. Because you can imagine how daunting it was to, you know, to, to show up and walk on the set and be with Elizabeth Taylor. Yeah, exactly. I mean, time and again, you know, you're, you're walking onto a set and like, uh, that's, a, I'm going to, I'm going to share a scene with Elizabeth Taylor. Are you yeah. kidding? You know, and she knew it was in everybody's best interest to just be, you know, one of the gang. Right. Um, and I just, I read that over and over again about her. That's great. So let's talk about, let's get into some of her films. So she made 56 films, 10 TV movies. She was in two stage productions, did 12 guest spots on TV, including, of course, Maggie Simpson's voice. That's a great thing I got to explain to my kids. You know who Maggie is? Elizabeth. And, you know, the kids are like, well, who's Elizabeth Taylor? And you're like, oh. Right, right. You know, <laughs> but um, you point out that that level of, and we mentioned this before, almost like that saturation level of celebrity is, is gone. And you make the point where, because when I read this, I'm like, well, what about Taylor Swift? What about people now? But you say this, and I want to get your reaction to this. You say, quote, no one will ever have such star machinery behind her again, and that film stars don't simply have the central place in society that they used to. So so what was she the last of? Can you, can you talk about that? Like, why isn't she coming back? Well, she was the last of the a great and mighty um studio invented star so what's remarkable about her is that she came in it, you know she she was a, a child in the 1940s and that was at the height of the studio system when you had older stars um who were were deeply attached to that that form of filmmaking and so forth she comes in as a child but then survives the the breakup of the studios into the era of independent production and um, so she had this association with classic filmmaking and yet was younger than a lot of the, the uh, you know, certainly younger than the Gables and the Garbos and so forth by, by a long shot. But the uh, marketing that went into creating her stardom was enormous and actually rather uh, centrally located, if you will, because it came from MGM. She had a, she was there for 18 years and they invented her essentially as a star and as an actress. They told her who to date. They told her what movies to make. They told her how to dress and, and how to carry herself and so on and so forth. She eventually rebelled against that. But also I think what's changed and why that level of celebrity will never come back, or at least I, it's hard to imagine, is because popular culture has been, has been splintered in so many directions today. So in the old days, in the days of Elizabeth Taylor, you went to the movies. You didn't see them on TV. You certainly didn't see them on your phone. You went to a big theater and you saw them. And there's this larger than life mythic creature up there. And then you enjoyed it. And so you saw the next one and the next one and the next one. And maybe you saw films on TV, but you knew that that was a, a, an inferior experience because they'd be chopped up with... with uh, with advertisements and so forth. And they might show up three years after they were first run, maybe five years, maybe not at all. So going to the movies was this great ritual. 
and um, centering our lives around, if you love movies, around movie stars and being able to discuss them Monday morning at work was simply, I think, a more pervasive communal experience in the old days, in the Elizabeth Taylor days, than it possibly could be today. Taylor Swift is a major, major celebrity. Um, I don't know that she engages as broad a cross-section of modern life as Elizabeth Taylor did. Right. And I don't know that anybody ever will again. Yeah. Well, to go back to, to put to, you know, push a point, it's again like Sunset Boulevard, like she was big, it's the pictures that got smaller. <laughs> Right, right, right. Um, well, and in her case, her pictures got smaller, but that's that's another story. Uh, but her celebrity didn't. Her celebrity. Right. That's true. And never, ever dimmed. Yeah. yeah. And what you point out too is so true. Is like like today, the the the, the film going experience is so fragmented. Where everyone is now, you can you can watch whatever you want as much as you want. You don't have to talk to anyone else about it. I'm on third season of this, or I'm you know I've seen this one. So it's so hard to find that communal kind yeah. of things. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's you bring up another good point, which is that maybe we're sharing things, but we're not necessarily necessarily sharing them at the same time. Right. A movie opens in the 1950s, like Giant, for example, right. and you go see Giant, right? Everybody and then does. you talk about it, and you're right. just not. With the program, if you have, if you wait a month, you are going to wait in the long line that in the first two weeks. Yeah. Otherwise, it's going to go by, and you don't know if you'll ever see it again. And it's this huge phenomenon, and you know that again that creates a wonderful cohesive popular culture yeah. that we don't have. Like, oh, I'll see that, I'll see that when it when I can stream it. You know, why go to a theater? That. So yeah, that's Absolutely. I think that's. So let's let's talk about her films and let's talk about what I think is a wonderful, wonderful structure of your book. I mentioned before that the the subtitle it's called On Elizabeth Taylor, but I love this part, an opinionated guide. So so you are certainly not the first person to say, I'm gonna write a book about Elizabeth Taylor. You probably won't be the last, but I think your book does something that's that's wonderful and I think it's engaging and it's a lot of fun. And I'd like you to tell the listeners about how what is the Matthew Kennedy approach to Elizabeth Taylor? <laughs> Dan, I'm, thank you. Thank you for that question and that, that approach from you, actually. Um, the Opinionated Guide is, comes from a, um, a series, a kind of informal series that's happening at the publisher of the book, Oxford University Press, where they are asking various writers to do career assessments of major artists. Um, the first one was Stephen Sondheim, by Ethan Morden, and then he did one on Barbara Streisand, and there are there haven't been many yet. Um, so I was approached to do this on Elizabeth Taylor or on a movie star, and I thought it was my idea to do Elizabeth Taylor. But the the um, format of the book uh, it was indeed so much fun to write because I simply took all of her films and wrote individual essays on each one of them. So. I was freed from the burden as a as a somebody who's done biography of a a book length flow between chapters. It was more like here, you know, she did the last time I saw Paris. She did National Velvet. If they're separate essays, if you read them one after the other chronologically, there will be a flow of sorts, but it's a professional flow, right? It's it's she went from this movie to that movie to that movie. You can you can get a sense of her progression and maturity as an actress 
Um, but it was, so the opinionated guide part was that it is not simply a reference book that talks about, you know, she worked with this director and it made this amount of money and the reviews were this and so forth. It's actually, what do I think her performance brings to the film? Where do I, where, how does this performance impact the, the uh, arc of her career? Uh, what perhaps was going on in her private life at the time that impacts what we see on screen. So the focus is really, with each film, is actually even not the film itself, but what she brings to the film. There were times as a writer where I was so tempted to deviate into, you know, um, well, the director was having a nervous breakdown or, you know, the studio was running out of money or whatever. And I said, I had to keep myself on track and say, Matt, it's about Elizabeth. It's about her performance. It is about what she brings to the screen. Everything else is secondary. Uh, and that, I hope, brings a somewhat fresh perspective to her and her films, given that, as you alluded to, Dan, there are already quite a few books on Elizabeth Taylor, <laughs> right? So the challenge at the, at the onset was, how do I make this different how do how can i approach her very larger than life legacy uh in a in a in a fresh way yeah well before you said that she was fun and your book the fun of your book is of course is that the I, I, this is how i imagine every human is going to read this book you go to your favorite movies by her okay let's see what he said about this movie okay let's oh yeah that's <laughs> And then you see other ones, you're like, oh, I forgot she was in that. And then you see other movies where you're like, I didn't even know about this movie. Like, you know, so that's what the fun is. That it's like the, the flipping around part makes it fun to go through. Well, I certainly hope that's the effect. I mean, yeah. you know, that that uh, anybody who loves her, maybe even loves classic Hollywood, yeah. will have it on their shelf and say, oh, that's an Elizabeth Taylor movie. Well, yeah, exactly. What, is, what does Kennedy have to say? <laughs> and also, I kind of expect that there's going to be a... Um, kind of a conversation going on because the fact that it's an opinionated guide makes it singular it's like i fully expect that people are going to read this and go he really he he liked that performance or he liked that movie or oh wow i thought that was a great movie and he's just kind of lukewarm or or i do try to make a distinction of course yeah. between the film and her in it mm -hmm. and often there is a disjuncture there between, you know, I'm thinking she's bringing a lot to a movie that doesn't have, that isn't really supporting her very well is, you know, it is also very often the case. Uh, so I try to make that distinction, but I fully expect that. And I, I even welcome it. I mean, that's the point. We, we all have opinions, right? I just have this amazing, had this amazing privilege to be able to uh, publish mine. <laughs> That's great. That's great. Yeah. The dream job of the 10-year-old who saw Taming of the Shrew is watch all these movies and just spout <laughs> off on them and give your opinions. Soul. Exactly. Well, I sometimes pinch myself and say, I can't believe my 10-year-old my self can't believe I'm, can hardly believe I've actually done this, right? Like, yeah. So before, <laughs> we, get, before we get into the some of the actual movies, I just want to ask you another overall question before we dive in a little more deeply was you said before, you know, that she wanted to set people at ease. She knew what it was like. You had to be on the set with Elizabeth Taylor. 
you do talk in many of your entries about you know the the the, the, uh, the directors you worked with and our co-stars and things. And one question I just wanted to get from you is of all the directors with whom she worked, like who do you think she enjoyed working with the most, or who do you think she respected the most? Well, um, I would say um, there were there were directors she enjoyed and there were directors she respected, and they didn't necessarily intersect. Right. <laughs> um, I think in many cases they did, but in 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 others they didn't. What what a re who immediately comes to mind in terms of directors she respected but didn't necessarily like would be George Stevens, mm -hmm. who directed her in A Place in the Sun and Giant, mm -hmm. and later on a film called uh, The Only Game in Town. But uh, he was, by her account, rather tyrannical on the set, especially of Giant, less so with A Place in the Sun. And it sounds like it, she was often somewhat traumatized in the age when directors, uh, patriarchal directors, could do that as a way of, uh, without being um, called out, as a way of getting the, the performances they wanted. And uh, so she did speak very well of him as a director in the ensuing years. Uh, and the evidence of his effectiveness is right there in both of those films, in her performances. But he doesn't sound like he's a very nice guy. Let's put it that way, especially on Giant. He did stuff that uh, uh, sounds downright mean. Um, and then there were directors that were just so creative for her and so enlivening and that they just clicked so well that they had both a great time and the results were great. And I, the ultimate example of that, I would say, is with Mike Nichols on Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. That was the only time the two of them worked together. And what's miraculous is there are so many points of that film that are simply miraculous in terms of how well it turned out. And one of them, one of the key ones, is that it was Nichols' uh, film debut as a director. Uh, he had great achievement at, as a stage director, but as there are other examples in her career where we can say stage directing and film directing are really very different. And if you have a, a, an affinity for one, it does not necessarily mean you have an affinity for the other. But they, she took a huge risk in insisting that, and she was powerful enough at that point to insist that Nichols be the director of that film. Um, and they absolutely got along so well. I mean, there was a, a lot of, um, in the descriptions of the set, it sounds tremendously creative and that Nichols would bring all sorts of inventive things to the set to help all of the, the four actors uh, create these characters and embody them and live them thoroughly, yeah. which is, again, the results we see on the screen. Yeah, you talk about the set decoration of, of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, about what George and Martha's house looked like, and, and all the bric-a-brac and all the things that Mike Nichols put right. on there to, to, to let them inhabit this world. Yes, and it's, you know, it's, it's such an atypical set um, in that, you know, Oftentimes art direction is, it seems kind of elementary. It's like, it, it's signaling something like, oh, they're middle-class or they're rich or they're um, struggling or, you know, whatever. With Virginia Woolf, it's like, well, they're intellectual and they're pack rats and they're um, everything. I believe every, you know, practically every piece, piece of ephemera in that house has 
some meaning to them in the history of their marriage. I mean, that's that now that's right. really an art direction. And it also had the effect of uh, exciting the actors and yeah. helping them create an interior life for the characters. Yeah, that's the I just rewatched on the on the fun of your book. I rewatched Father the Bride, and um, you know when you see you talk about the art direction when Spencer Tracy goes in his house for the first time, you just, you're like, got it, got it. I understand. I just yeah, exactly. got it done. It's everything is there. But who's afraid right. of wolf is so different. Yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. So let's let's dive into some of the films and let's get the let's get the the Matt Kennedy hot take. The opinion <laughs> on, on some of these films, and I'll just say the title, and you, 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 you give the listeners, you know, what you want them to think about that title. So let's start with Cat on a Hot Tin Roof. Well, um, okay, my opinionated guide, <laughs> <laughs> and please, I'm not, I, I don't, I don't want to be followed like a, you know, like gospel. Um, <laughs> um, it's my second favorite Elizabeth Taylor performance mm -hmm. after Virginia Woolf, and uh, what they have in common, I think is her phenomenal commitment to the role and the embodiment of the character she's playing. So that it, it comes down to my, how believable I, how believable she is as that person. Am I, am I drawn into the world of Maggie the cat largely by the power of that performance? Obviously there's a lot of interesting, great stuff going on around her. But she has a huge, she has a lot of heavy lifting in that film uh, because of the censorship around it, it, specifically in the character that Paul Newman plays, which, who is her, her husband in the film. Um, but what I love about that performance is her physicality. So she, just in the act of walking across the screen, walking across the set, I'm saying, now there goes a movie star. <laughs> I mean, there, but there also goes Maggie the cat. So you have that wonderful combination of that's Elizabeth Taylor, and that's the that's the character she's playing. She's she's in service to the character and the drama, and she's fulfilling the obligations of her her character beautifully, and she's still Elizabeth Taylor. Right. And um the physicality of the role is such you know, that she is a, a woman who is deeply frustrated at the lack of interest that her husband has uh, developed for her sexually. And in a kind of method actor approach, which, and she wasn't a method actor, she's thinking, you know, Maggie, the character Maggie the Cat has a motivation, right? That's often key to many, to many method performances. I'm motivated to want to achieve this in this scene, how do I go about doing it? With Maggie the Cat, what makes her motivation so delicious is that it's sex. She she really, really wants to have an erotic life with her husband again. And how Taylor does that with her body, with her voice, with her face is so mesmerizing to me and so convincing. Um, and, and she is aided, I mentioned this in the essay, she has three costumes in, in uh, Cat on a Hot Tin Roof. And each one has a different relationship to her physicality. One is much is more restrictive and what you wear in public. Another one is her slip that she's only going to show in the presence of her husband. And then another is this chiffon flowing gown for the finish of the film uh, when her character actually experiences a kind of liberation uh, and a kind of triumph. Um, so that, 
I yeah, I I simply love that performance. And in fact, I've seen other Maggies, and I sent I I don't think they compare. Um, I always see Elizabeth Taylor when I watch somebody else do Maggie the Cat, and that's actually quite a thing to say, given that again that version of the of the story of ten, the the play by Tennessee Williams was heavily censored and modified to fit a puritanical notion of sexuality in American film in the 1950s. Right. She overcomes. Yeah, she sure does. She's, yeah. Absolutely. Let's move on to Giant. Now, you begin the entry on Giant with this with this question. How many ways do I love Giant? So what do you, <laughs> love, what do you love about Giant? Well, you know, in that line, I realize it's, it's I'm, I'm really... Uh, delighted at, at the things you tease out of the book. Like I, I thought that line and I thought, do I even want to keep that line? It sounds like such a little fanboy. And then I, I just decided I'm going to, I just, just keep it just, it's just fine. It, and I, I do feel very strongly about that, that film and that performance. And what I was sort of effusing about was that that film is a, lovable to me in many, many ways. If I go straight to her performance, what I can say about it is that to me, it is probably the, no, it is the performance over all others that in which I feel I'm getting the closest glimpse of Elizabeth Taylor off camera at her best. And I say that because of the character she plays, Leslie Benedict is is she's complex and she's um, she has blind spots and flaws, but she's a ultimately a highly virtuous moral person who has no patience and no uh, tolerance for intolerance, for racism, for sexism, uh, for uh, classism, and in her um, in her way, in her subtle uh, and yet powerful way that character alters the this this huge um texas huge rich influential texas family and by extension all of texas <laughs> and maybe even all of america she is the voice of of reason and compassion and um um love for fellow humans that uh through throughout the entire film and it actually, what's also miraculous about it is that she does this in a way that never feels preachy. It never feels self-serving or self-righteous. It's simply who this character is. She is one of the most compelling good people in film I've ever seen. You know, we often think, oh, you know, it's the villains that are fun to watch and fun to play and so on and so forth. It's like, Leslie Benedict is just... You know what? What I you know I wish the world was full of Leslie Benedicts, and I don't find her cloying or overly sentimental or anything else. She's just a fabulous human being. <laughs> yeah, that's the kind of movie in, in our age of reboots and remakes. I mean, there's no there's no bottom in Hollywood. There's no there's nothing that a producer won't try to remake. But even the Giant, they just know you oh. can't remake. You can't. You, there's certain movies we're not going to do again, and you can't do Giant again. I sure I've never heard anybody even even whisper the idea. Yeah, right. I, I, it's, it is pretty hard to imagine. Yeah. yeah. 
So let's move on to, you mentioned this before, and I want to ask your opinion of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, because for me, that was the movie. So I was I was younger. It was on public television, I remember, being a kid. I had never heard of I mean, I'd heard of her, but I'm like, who's this Elizabeth Taylor person? And I'm like, wasn't she married to this guy, Richard Burton, or more than one? And I was too young to understand the movie, but I watched it, and I was like, wow, like, this is, no wonder, I didn't understand the whole thing about the fake kid um, or any, any of the, the disillusion of their marriage, but I knew that I was watching, you know, top-shelf people, so... What is it about her in that film that, that you keep coming back to? Well, Dan, I have to ask. So you're saying that that was the first Elizabeth yeah. Taylor performance you saw? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Wow. Now, there's yeah. a, there's an introduction already. Yeah, there's the, yeah really. Talk, talk about being told. You, the went, right, yeah. you went right to the summit. <laughs> um, well, I have seen Virginia Woolf many, many times and uh, found it endlessly entertaining as this fantastic tour de force, the most brilliant writing, the most brilliant acting, directing, cinematography, art direction, as we talked about, the score, the editing. I mean, everything about that film is just magnificent. And um, writing about it was actually a whole different thing because I could just, you know, in, in the times I'd seen it before, I could just wallow in its wonderfulness with other friends who have a similar high affection for it. And then, um, so to to actually write about it was something of a challenge um, because I realized like, oh, you know, <laughs> here I am gushing about its, its many virtues, but really it's a very, very disturbing story, right? I mean, it's a, this marriage is on the surface at least incredibly destructive and corrosive and so forth. And I'm just like bubbling along about, oh, isn't this, this is, this is a great movie. And I need to realize that its impact could be very different for people who are, you know, seeing it for the first time. But in terms of Taylor, um, Nichols seemed to give her permission to basically be, for the first time in her career, I would say, a character actress. You know, she was aged, uh, she was 32 in the, 33 when the film was first being made. She played somebody probably in her mid-50s, alcoholic, deeply embittered, in a long-term marriage, which Taylor had not experienced at that point in her life. Uh, and she was only, she'd only been married to Burton for about a year when they made that film. And Nichols, it through through again the brilliance of the script and the direction and her co-stars, she lowered her voice, she wore this is unflattering, uh, you know, outfits. She um, changed her walk. She lowered her center of gravity. And she writes about her the, the sort of creative liberation that she experienced with Virginia Woolf and how she didn't feel that she was Martha, but that as a, she didn't draw necessarily on a lot from herself to be Martha, but that she somehow found this character through all of these, these means and, and lived it. Um, so to watch her in this film is to watch her transform into something else, maybe more spectacularly than she ever did before or since. Uh, and the other thing about Virginia Woolf is, is how funny it is and how much humor she brings to it. It's, it's humor with, a, with, a, with pain to it, with enormous pain. But, and, and the other thing is that the layers in that film and that she brings out, um, 
they, you know, George and Martha appear to absolutely loathe each other and that the best thing they could possibly do is to is to end this marriage and go their separate ways. But again, through the brilliance of the writing and the playing, we learn that it's it's a strange and twisted way of actually demonstrating that they can't live live without each other, that it, this is a deep and abiding love that they share. Uh, but my goodness, what a strange way to express it, <laughs> you know, and the, again, the brilliance of it is that it, it, you know, at its drawing back as far as we can, I'm saying is, is this a statement on marriage in general? Is it that broad that we can say George and Martha have achieved something extremely rare that we might even want to emulate on some level, or is it just an exercise in marital sadomasochism. I just, uh, you know, yeah. it's such a, it's such a piece to ponder, yeah. you know. It's such a train wreck, but uh, you can't stop looking at it. I mean, that's- exactly. Yeah, right. yeah, right. and yeah. So let's let's go to another uh, another train wreck. Not a <laughs> film, but so to speak, but I have to ask that. This was the first entry I read in your book. So when I got the book, I said I, I looked at the introduction and I said, right, let me start going through these movies. And the first one I read was Cleopatra. And I wanted to oh. read that one because I'm a great admirer of Joe Megawitz. I've read about him a lot. And um, your, your, your essay on Cleopatra mirrored my experience exactly. And I know this, this interview is about you. But I watched it. I kept waiting for it to get unbelievably terrible because all I had heard my whole life was that you know, Herman Mankiewicz wrote the greatest movie ever made, Citizen Kane, and that Joe Mankiewicz made the worst movie ever made, <laughs> his little brother, with Cleopatra. <laughs> and I love your line. Here's another line I loved in your book. You say, it's more about Hollywood than Egypt. So talk about Cleopatra, because like you, I do not find this movie to be a disaster at all. Well, Dan, I think, I hope that you and you and I are kind of on the the cutting edge, if you will. <laughs> that's, that's big flattering um of a reassessment of this film because uh there are others I, I, I we're not the only ones there are others who have discovered that hey wait a minute you know it's it's now a 60 year old film but that it, it's what's what's all the fuss about how terrible this film was right and what a what a train train wreck what a disaster um the script by a Mankiewicz no less is very witty very um um has a kind of old Hollywood zing to it in, and and uh, also brings out the drama and the psychology of the three main characters, Mark Antony, Caesar, and Cleopatra. Um, but I think the film was so scandalous and so noteworthy in its day in terms of the uh, the budget out of, out of hand, the affair that Taylor and Burton had on the set and how that went public in a, in a, very gaudy way. Um, the fact that it was the most expensive film ever made. I mean, all of this seemed to eclipse any kind of reasonable, critical judgment of the film. So when it came out, there were some positive reviews, but most most were, many were quite negative. They said it's too long. It's, you know, overstuffed, way overproduced. I mean, these sets they just go on forever and ever. Um, but I think this is one case, maybe the most uh, uh, significant in the entire book, one case where the passing of time 
allows us to reassess this film without all of that noise, right? Without all of the surrounding hoo-ha that engulfed it at the point that it was released in 1963. And now we can just curl up with it and watch it as a movie, right? And what do we see? We see a four hour epic that is unbelievably opulent to the eyes incredibly impressive because that's all done in camera we're you know way before the age of cgi and you go did anyone ever really build a set that big is that are those really elephants yeah <laughs> right it, yeah I, I think i you know they're the size of a football field right. um are those really five thousand extras that i'm seeing or are they you know uh dummies um and the answer is yes, it's all real. It all really happened. They really did put together a, a film that magnificent. And as for Elizabeth, um, she has she got generally quite bad reviews. So the film was praised in many ways, but very few people came out and said, actually, she does a pretty good job. Um, what I see when I look at her and Cleopatra is I see someone assuming a very regal, appropriately, a very regal stance as Cleopatra. Um, I see that she brings a lot of stillness to this performance. That is not the case with uh, her recent performances prior to that. Um, and that she finds a kind of stature in Cleopatra through through stillness uh, uh, physically. And I, I do think her voice in the in the film is sometimes problematic there's a little bit of a rasp to it or it's maybe hits the wrong chord or something um but then I lighten up and say well you know I, I try to be as generous as possible and I say well it's it's she's speaking English and it's depicting ancient Egypt and People aren't going to, you know, everybody doesn't have to sound like Rex Harrison and Richard Burton, who were these, you know, mellifluous stage trained actors that are surrounding her. Um, so it's another case. I mean, well, actually, the ultimate case, I think, where if you want to see what a what a movie star looks like, watch Elizabeth Taylor and Cleopatra. Yeah, and I would also tell people, don't be afraid of watching this movie. No, uh, it's it's not it's it, it's it's not a a it's worthwhile. I'll and put you it that out that it actually it did make money. It, like it went, it did not end the red. that's see now that's when I say you know we're on the we're on the cutting edge. I think of, <laughs> of trying to to uh, put to rest the notion that it's either a bad movie and that it also lost money. Um, it actually made money. It just took a very long time to make money because it was so darn expensive. Right. But uh, adjusted for inflation, it is currently the 46th highest box office in, in film history, which maybe doesn't sound very impressive. But if you think about how many films are out there in the world, 46th is actually extremely impressive. Pretty good. That's pretty good. Yeah. yeah. So before we get to her or Lady Crane, last individual movie I want to ask you about, and this is kind of timely. I just happened to read in the New York Times a week ago, uh, David Mamet, the screenwriter and director, he was asked, he has a new book about Hollywood, and they asked him, what, what, is, what is the great American movie? And he said, the great American movie is A Place in the Sun. Hmm. It's kind of funny he said that, and then I'm like, oh, I knew I was going to talk to you. So let's talk about that, A Place in the Sun. Yes, A Place in the Sun. Um, 
that was directed by George Stevens. It was their first uh, uh, collaboration, uh, the second being Giant. Um, and the thing, again, I'm always refracting this through through her, right? Uh, the thing, one of the things that I would start with with A Place in the Sun that is so astonishing is that when she made that film, she was 17. Now, if you see that film and didn't know that, I mean, when I saw it, I, again, I've seen it many times before writing about it, I would have guessed maybe 23 um, in the way she conducts herself, but also the way she... Uh, uh, also the demands of the character. Right. And so it's based on a, a an American tragedy by Theodore Dreiser and uh, is essentially a love triangle. And Taylor plays a rich pampered socialite who falls in love with a somewhat mysterious dr drifter played by Montgomery Clift, who's also the nephew of a man who, a very wealthy man who owns the, the, the Eastman, is it, I think it's a uh, swimwear company. But what she brings to the film is an absolute ardor for the Montgomery Clift character that is deeply moving and deeply uh, convincing. And the significance, again, of this film is that she was being very definitely groomed for adult roles um, at MGM, but they were not very good properties. I mean, things like The Last Hangover and Conspirator and other films that she made immediately before A Place in the Sun. She was called upon to, to be to be a, to play grown-up emotions, but again, not very good, not very good stuff. With A Place in the Sun, she has this fantastic screenplay. She has this fantastic director. Montgomery Clift was a, a brilliant stage actor who had uh, made a major impression on screen uh, by the time they came together. And so I give a lot of credit to Clift and to Stevens for helping pull out of Elizabeth what she was capable of. And I don't want to give them so much credit that, you know, to say that it's a, a Pygmalion type of relationship where they, they made her, they sculpted her into this great uh, screen presence. I All the work in the world on their part wouldn't have done a thing if she couldn't have done it herself. But it is, it, it's a, it's a, a very significant film in her career that that helped people stand up and take notice and say this beautiful this un unearthly beautiful screen actress uh or screen star personality uh is it she's going to go the distance <laughs> she's she's a she's a major star and we now have the proof and she's on to an indefinite adult career right. um it's a beautiful film in, in that the, again, it's like Virginia Woolf, so many uh, departments that go into making a film were at the top of their game. Um, all the planets aligned when, when that film. Yeah, was. exactly. All the planets aligned. Absolutely. So those th those films I asked you about are ones that anybody would look, you know, anybody that comes to this book is going to look up A Place in the Sun and Kevin Hunt and Roof. But I want to ask you, like, so you had to be a completist to do this, right? What's what's a film that you watched for the sake of the book or just to say that I've seen them all that kind of surprised you? And you're like, well, I, I, never, I never thought that would be as good or as bad or as interesting. Well, I think that the biggest surprise for me was a film called and this is I, I hope that for people who love Elizabeth Taylor this will be part of the fun of the book as you as you pointed out 
that apart from the classics there, she did a lot of obscure stuff and it's maybe obscure for a reason, <laughs> like it's not very good or whatever. Um, but it, there's a lot of worthwhile stuff to explore that's lesser known in her career. And the film that really shocked me the most upon re-examination was, is called The Driver's Seat. And it comes out from 1974. Um, I had seen the driver's seat. I saw it a couple of times on an old videotape at a friend's house. And it's, that is no way to see that movie. I'm here to tell you it was, you know, sort of washed out and, and um, we, you know, the, the effect was, was blunted in that respect. And we were laughing at it. We saw this is the craziest, weirdest movie. Can you believe Taylor, you know, put herself in this. She's writhing around on the bed. She's like grabbing her breasts. She's making these unbelievably weird uh, dialogue. And like, what is it? It's, it's Italian with like stilted and like, what is going on? Well, okay. That's what, that's how I came to the driver's seat when I knew I had to look at it again. I on canopy, which is a streaming service uh, that is available out there. Um, there is a fresh print of the driver's seat. And the cinematographer on the driver's seat is Vittorio Storaro, who is a brilliant cinematographer who did the, uh, the Conformist and later on did Reds and worked with Bernardo Bertolucci quite a bit. Well, <laughs> to see a fresh remastered print of the driver's seat was to see a new movie. And it was watching it all by myself alone, it was really, really unsettling. It's a very disturbing, dark psychological thriller in which Taylor's character is on a, a rendezvous with death, you might say. Um, and she plays this character in a fairly understated way. So the character she plays is by, you know, conventional standards insane she's she's totally she's totally gone but she doesn't play it in a any kind of stock way she's not like bugging her eyes and pulling her hair out in a or um doing any kind of stock indication that uh, of of actorly actors playing insane she's understated she she um takes the, the the character and the dialogue and kind of uh, works it in a subtle way, in an underhanded way, uh, so that we're saying, did she just say that in a kind of deadpan, monotonous way? But what she said was just outrageous. I mean, it's just, it's just you know, she's talking about getting, she wants somebody to shoot her. She wants, um, she talks about sex pretty openly. She, uh, that combined with the cinematography and the use of color and the use of shadows in that film, if you sort of surrender to it and watch it late at night, I guarantee it will have a disturbing effect. It will have an old movie, movie uh, quality that will linger with you. I'm not here to say it's a great movie because there are other things in it that aren't quite, maybe don't quite work. But the combination of Vittorio Storaro and Elizabeth Taylor really putting herself out there with an interesting character uh, uh, and a vanity-free character 
is uh, a sight to behold. That's a great endorsement. <laughs> yeah, well, and it's and it comes. It came out in 1974, which is you know usually referred to as this this absolute uh, this desert in her career of you know one unfortunate movie after another that that brought her down as a as an actress. When you talk in your intro, you say that you're fascinated by her, what you call her career decline in her later films. And you say this as a quote of you, you say, quote, virtually all of her later films were deleterious in one way or another. So why do you think that was the case? Well, you know, I think there were a lot of factors going on and one, some were within her control, perhaps in some words. Um, in, in her post-Virginia Wolf career, which is really half her career. I mean, if you look at the her actual output, and yet very often accounts of her career end with Virginia Woolf. It's like, oh, we won't talk about, you know, Hammersmith is out. We won't talk about, you know, the Bluebird. But again, in terms of output, she she was very, she had, she was far from being done. Um, but there were all these different factors. One, I think, is that her marriage to Richard Burton was becoming more and more destructive. Uh, there was a lot of alcohol involved. Uh, and so they, as a screen team, seemed to work less and less well as their uh, partnership went on uh, in their marriage. Um, there's also, I think, a kind of downward spiral that happens um, with major stars where, you know, you have one box office failure with bad reviews. And then that means that the next film is going to maybe not have quite the same budget that the previous one did. And maybe the people involved aren't going to be quite as on top of their game. And then that one also that does even worse than the previous one. You know, and you've got this downward spiral. And I think that definitely happened with her. Um, and also she was, by Hollywood standards, getting, she was veering toward middle age. And in the old days, and I'm happy to say this is this has really changed in Hollywood. You know, an actress might be done with major stardom, with leading roles by the time she's 40. And Taylor turned 40 in 1972, which is right when her career was struggling. Um, that really has changed. And I, I for, for the better. I mean, people have, women in particular, have viable careers way past that. Um, what Taylor did was choose to maintain her leading role, leading lady status as, as a star. But that meant that as opposed to, so, well, that meant that the films themselves got lower in in budget and quality and 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 um ambition but another option for her that she didn't take was i'm going to start playing people's mothers in high budget films right she chose to remain a star while as you know to quote norma desmond the pictures got small <laughs> i mean it really right. was the case for her and um but i found tremendous um riches in seeing some of these later films where clearly the material her, to her surrounding her wasn't so wonderful but i can see her doing what she could with it yeah. and bringing her magnetism to it and and uh walking away looking pretty good if the rest of the film didn't yeah, you point out like in your, your essay about nightwatch i think it is you say like you know she never phoned it in she always delivered 
Yeah. Yeah. Nightwatch. Nightwatch is, I'd say, kind of a, a mediocre thriller right. horror movie. Um, it does pick up toward the end, but she she brings home a nice, meaty, you know, satisfying, old-fashioned movie star performance. Yeah. So you talk about also at the end of the book, in addition to the fifty-six films, you talk about you know some some theatrical performances she did. I, I love the the stage reading with her and Richard Burton. I, I had no idea that existed, yeah. right? That was really cool. But um, you know, what were some of the interesting you know post-film, if you will, like appearances or things that you discovered about her that you that you would tell people to try to try to find a recording of if there is one or read about? Well, um, she had. I, I, hes I hesitate to even call it a, a, a theatrical career, but she did do stage appearances sporadically, yeah? And so the, the biggie would be The Little Foxes in 1981. Her, her film career was pretty much like grinding to a halt at that point. And she was, you know, antsy and wanted to uh, do some acting. And she... Uh, appeared in this Broadway production of The Little Foxes and uh, did very well. Yeah. Uh, reviews were strong. She had a wonderful um, cast, including Maureen Stapleton and others that, uh, you know, brought to life this really rich Lillian Hellman melodrama. Um, and she loved that experience, apparently. Uh, there, I was able to see it thanks to a bootleg video that a collector had uh, it's not available commercially. And I saw a performance that I, I don't know what, what the date was, but it was during the New York run. And she was absolutely terrific. Um, there's a moment when she enters where it's, there's that kind of gasp of, oh my God, that's Elizabeth Taylor in a, in a Broadway drama. And then she just absorbs into the ensemble. And I think that comes back to the idea of she was fun, right? She... Yeah made sure that she did not turn this into a, a vanity project where they're all supporting her, that she very much came to that, ultimately came to it as best as she could as we're an ensemble and we're, you know, we have a common goal here. Yeah. Um, and it's not necessarily to make me the star. I mean, that's, that's the, the, the feeling that I get in, in, in that performance. And there are moments in the little foxes where, uh, you know, she has the kind of, command that I would say goes all the way back to Maggie the cat in Cat on a Hot Tin Roof. The other, her other stage appearances, I was not able to see, and I don't know that they exist in terms of, you know, ever being recorded. Private Lives by Noel Coward is something that she and Burton did after she did The Little Foxes. And that is, uh, all the reviews of that and the accounts of it are extremely negative and that it was actually kind of a sad spectacle to watch the two of them way after they divorced twice uh, and were um, sort of carting out their their public images and, and playing on the, the double meanings of the dialogue and, you know, not really being very disciplined actors at that point. Because um, this is gimmicky, right? I mean, yeah, gimmicky. Yeah, exactly. Uh, sort of stunt casting and right. the, the two of them in that in that show in that play. And um, a friend of mine actually saw it, and uh, he said he was pretty kind. He said, you know, they, they, yeah, it was fluffy, but they looked like they were having a good time. And you know, he he actually had a fond memory of it, right. as opposed to that was just painful to watch. Right. Um, 
Burton was near near his death. He was in late stage alcoholism at that point. Um, so it, yeah, it, it was it, emotionally. I think it was uh, difficult for her. The other things that she did on on stage were uh, short term. In some cases, a single night. Uh, the the stage reading from 1964, uh, which I would have given anything to have. You know, I sure wish we had a record of that. Uh, but she also did a stage reading of love letters at the very, very end of her career, the last her last professional appearance in 2007 uh, with James Earl Jones. And by all accounts, she was fantastic. And it wasn't just because you're Elizabeth Taylor. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I know. It's like yeah, everything is recorded now. And you're like, nobody hit nobody hit record on this. Nobody thought this yeah. was a good idea. Well, it, maybe, you know, right. but maybe my book will bring out some, right. some other bootleg copies. I, I sure hope so. So last question, Gary. You know that you have a timeline at the beginning of the, of the book, which is really useful because you go back and see what was going on in Taylor's life, you know, parallel to her, her artistic life. And you point out that, you know, she died in 2011. She was survived by her brother, four children, 10 grandchildren, four great-grandchildren. And I was just curious, and I don't know the answer to this. Have any of these people done anything to, like, preserve her legacy? Like, do they do anything to kind of, like, maintain this and, and kind of keep her, her films alive? Um, absolutely. Um, the, the, uh, in her lifetime, she founded the Elizabeth Taylor AIDS Foundation, uh, and which is most people probably know of, as, and she co-founded uh, Foundation for AIDS Research, aka AMFAR, uh, with the goal of raising money for people with AIDS in service to research and uh, education, care, etc., and she was a, a, a fierce uh, advocate for people with AIDS, especially in the 1980s, uh, when public attitudes were uh, horrific in terms of, of care and compassion for, for people with AIDS. That lives on in the Elizabeth Taylor AIDS Foundation. And I, I sound like a promotion, but I'm not, I'm not trying to be. Uh, <laughs> um, and her children and grandchildren are in various ways involved um, and are continuing to do advocacy on behalf of, of the AIDS Foundation. And if you visit the uh, what's called the House of Taylor, which is a, a sort of umbrella term for her both her, her line of fragrances as well as jewelry, which she also developed as a businesswoman beginning in the 1980s, that in which that money went into AIDS, AIDS work. Um, if you visit the House of Taylor, you will see that their her legacy via her family and via the staff and the, the board there is very strong. And so she's not simply being remembered as an actress and a celebrity, but also as a great philanthropist. And what she believed in and what she uh, devoted herself to philanthropically is is still very much very much alive. Yeah. Great. Great. On Elizabeth Taylor, an opinionated guide, it's available everywhere. And if you love the films of Elizabeth Taylor, or like we said, classic Hollywood, you do not want to miss this. It's published by Oxford University Press. You can get it wherever you find books. There's a link to it on our New Books Network website. Matthew Kennedy, thank you so much for being on the show. Dan, thank you. This has been great fun. I will tell you just in, if I may, as a as a part, uh, in parting, uh, this is the uh, the book is actually we're, we're we're speaking in January of 2024. The book is due out in April, but it's available to pre-order 
now. And uh, this is my very first interview about the book. So I want to thank you for, um, I hope, starting starting the ball rolling. Sure, sure. <laughs> well, your enthusiasm comes through uh, in the interview, but also for all the listeners out there, it really comes through on the page. I mean, this is a movie that you 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 drink coffee as you read it, and you laugh at certain lines, and then you're like, "What's he going to say about the next thing?" It was it, that's what I mean. It was kind of like it was like listening to a a, um, a fan, but not a fanboy, go on about uh, somebody who he's admired for a long time. So well done. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that feedback very much.